Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Simon Addison, Heritage Business Manager at the Roman Baths. We talk all things pricing and the phenomenal impact that introducing variable pricing has had at the baths. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Simon, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to see you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm nervous about the icebreakers though. Everyone always is. You shouldn't be. What is your favourite season and why? I think autumn. Yeah, the colours on the trees, the kick through the leaves with the kids. You can go out on those walks, you get the crisp mornings. We're starting to get them at the moment. But you still get sort of a bit of warmth at the end of the day in the afternoon. Um, you can still sit outside on a good day. Yeah, definitely autumn. Totally agree. You are my people, Simon. Um, autumn, <laughs> woolly hats. Yeah. Cold but bright. Yes. Crispy floored dog walks and Halloween. Uh, not so much of a Halloween person. We could be in an unpopular opinion territory here. But um, yeah. All right. We'll save that. OK. Um, have you ever been told off for touching something in a museum? Yep, I have. I think the last time was at Land Hydrock, which is a National Trust place down in Cornwall. We were in the kitchen. They had some plastic fake food on the table and I got told off for touching the plastic fake food. Did you just touch it or were you trying to juggle with it? I was just I was just touching it, Kelly. <laughs> okay. Okay, don't touch plastic fruit, kids. Right. What is something you're really good at that's a little bit obscure? I'll give you an example of one of mine. I'm really good at if I hear a song or like like songs, I can tell you what film they've been in. That is a good question. I'm pretty good at motorways around the UK. (laughs) Tell me where you want to go. I could probably I could probably tell you roughly what motorways would be involved in that journey. Don't test me now, though. <laughs> don't and, and I'm really dreadful at that. So I don't know why that really made me laugh. It made you sound like an absolute nerd. Sorry, Simon. You asked an accountant on your podcast, <laughs> Kelly. That's very true. It's very true. I should have been more prepared for the, for the nerd answer, shouldn't I? Sorry. All right, so good at motorway. So it, you could have been like a London cabbie. You'd have been good at the knowledge. Yeah, I reckon that's a different level of knowledge, though, isn't it? Just those those trunk roads around the UK is quite it is quite niche. Kelly. I don't think it's <laughs> don't think it's that detailed. I think we're just talking about ma- major routes. We would need to find like a really niche pub quiz for our for our talents, wouldn't we? One that covers music from film, popular music from films, and uh, routes around the UK using motorways only. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's hey, a pretty tough, tough anyone, team, I think. Anyone knows a pub quiz team that needs those skills on them? Hit us up. <laughs> right, what is your unpopular opinion? Well, I was going to go with something about Crocs as being an abomination of a choice of footwear, but I feel like that might have come up before. Mm-hmm. So my unpopular opinion is that golf is the greatest amateur sport to play. Oh, okay. Uh, you are a keen golfer, I take it? I am a keen golfer, but I think more than that, like the handicap system. So you get a handicap if you're a golfer, it tells you how good you are. And that means that golfers of different abilities can play competitively against each other on a level playing field. I could go out and play against a professional and have a competitive match. I don't think there are many other sports that you could do that in. And I think for me, that meant that, you know, when I started playing golf in my early 20s, 
I used to play quite a bit with my granddad, who was quite a lot older than me. Um, and once I was working, I still used to play with him a few times a year. Although I was a better golfer than him on paper, I reckon I only beat him once. And every time I turned up to play with him, I wanted to show him how good I was and played like a Muppet. Um, but I don't think there are many sports that an 80-year-old could beat a 25-year-old at. And if you want to spend silly amounts of money, you can go and play courses where professionals play and you can see how much better they are than you. And you can really like measure your ability against what a professional sort of standard is. And my, my seven-year-old son's just getting into golf at the moment. And so this summer, walking around the golf course with him has been sort of the highlight of my summer. Oh. Um, and now he's got his handicap. He'll, he's seven and he'll probably beat me in a couple of years. And I, again, I don't think, you know, I don't think there are many sports where a seven or eight-year-old could turn up and beat a fully grown adult. So for me, that's why golf is the best amateur sport. Yeah, I'd never thought about it like that at all. I think that's brilliant. My husband is a king golfer um, and I'm a golf widow. Although not at the weekends because he's a wedding photographer and he works at the weekends. So he does fit it. He, he is quite kind and fits it around times where he should be working and he's not working. Um, but yeah, I hadn't ever thought about that. So it kind of puts you on a really good, I guess you get to learn from people that are really experienced as well, because you can actually play against them, whereas you would never get that opportunity at all, would you? Exactly. And you can go out and play with someone who's way better than you and see how they play and it can improve your game. Yeah. And my wife is also a golf widow. I reckon she's playing the long game. I think she's seeing it. If, you know, if, if, if my son plays as well, then you know, in, in years to come, she'll get those Saturdays back. Um, you know, maybe, maybe if the other son also takes up golf, maybe it's just a long game. But right now, she's definitely a golf widow. She knows. She is plotting because I'm doing exactly the same. I clock up the hours that Lee plays at golf and I work out how many hours I can spend doing things that I really want to. She says, I haven't found a hobby that takes me four hours yet. That's what I need. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, it's yeah, whilst it might be, in my opinion, the greatest sport for an amateur to play, it isn't a short sport and it isn't a cheap sport. No, it is not. That's a great opinion though. Let's see what our listeners think. Um, thank you. Okay, Simon. As you mentioned earlier, you are an accountant. I don't think we've had an accountant on the podcast before, but you're not really a traditional accountant, are you? So tell us a little bit about your role. So at the moment, I work at the Roman Baths in Bath um, for Bath and North East Somerset Council. So we're a council owned and run visitor attraction, um, as well as the Roman Baths. We operate the Fashion Museum and the Victoria Art Gallery in Bath and also the record office in the city. So my role is business manager. I'm responsible for all aspects of sort of finance and business planning, um, benchmarking and, and trend analysis. I sort of Try not to take offence at my profession when people say you're not a traditional accountant. But I think it means that I try and look a little bit further than just what the numbers are telling you. I think, you know, the accounts are only ever a symptom of what else is going on in the operation. So if all you do is look at the accounts each month, you're probably not going to understand what's driving those numbers. So I think, you know, maybe it's about trying to sort of relate all of that performance data to operational outcomes and objectives. Yeah, I think because we've spoken in the past, I always very much saw your your role the way well the conversations that we've had about your role have, have always been that you've been on the side of the operations as well so you you know you do have that kind of contact with the visitors and you have that kind of uh, you kind of broach that in between bit between the accountant and the ops department if that makes sense that that's how it came across to me anyway 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I think before I came to the bar, so I was at the National Trust. My job title there was finance business partner. And I think that really was, that was much more, um, well, you know, my role now is, is similar, but it's about working with operational staff and helping them to achieve their objectives. And I think people can see finance, can see budgets as, um, you know, an intimidating subject and actually really they're, they're a tool to achieve your objectives. And I think, you know, particularly in an organisation like the National Trust, you join the National Trust as a gardener or a ranger or a, con- a conservator because you're passionate about those things. If you're good at them, you get given a budget. Um, and, and I think, you know, then all of a sudden you're responsible for not just, you know, your garden, but also how much you spend looking after it. And I think sitting down with those people who may be wanted to spend more money or needed new equipment and sort of demystifying the accounts, how they worked, that's what, what I find really rewarding churning out a set of accounts or a budget in and of itself isn't you know isn't a particularly rewarding process it's about you know sitting down with someone who didn't think they could achieve x or y that year and 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 making them realize that actually it's it is achievable if they if they manage their money slightly differently i I think that's that's a really rewarding place to be yeah absolutely and that's that kind of alludes to some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today because you've been through a really interesting pricing journey at the bars and I want you to talk us through what you've done and then we can talk about some of the impacts that that's actually had because it's incredibly impressive and I think people listening will be really really intrigued by this so variable pricing tell us why you took that direction in the first place how did this come come to happen sure um I joined the bars in autumn 2017 so uh, we'd just come out of the summer over the summer at the bars we open um, 13 hours a day so open the doors at nine o'clock in the morning through to 10 o'clock at night we've got the gas flares going torchlight experience it's a it's a fantastic time but it takes its toll on staff opening for that length of time and we just had our busiest ever summer so in the the spring and early summer of 2017 there were some terror attacks in London and in Manchester Um, and one of the consequences of that is that we saw an almost immediate spike in visitors to Bath I think you know people perceive Bath as being a a relatively safe city Mm -hmm. you can drive pretty much into the centre of it and people could get to the Roman Baths without needing to engage in public transport and and so you know almost overnight you, you could see that sort of spike in visitors and frankly, we weren't prepared for it. So staff had come out of a summer where we'd seen huge numbers of visitors that we we perhaps weren't ready for. But actually, over the course of the previous three or four years, visitor numbers have been growing steadily. And we were doing nothing to really manage those numbers or influence when people came. So we could start the year telling you what our busiest day of the year was going to be. And all we did was brace ourselves. Right. So, so c- coming out of that sort of 2017 year, um, I was new in post. We also had a new commercial manager, new in post. We started to think about what we could do differently. Um, and I went to an Alva finance directors meeting where Baker Richards, the, the um, consultants, did a presentation on pricing strategy. And Debbie uh, Richards talked about the fact that if all you do is increase your price by inflation every year, you haven't got a pricing strategy. And we weren't even doing that. We were just putting 50p on it, not linking it to inflation. And, um, you know, all we were doing was making a bit more money each year, but we weren't really shaping anything to do with our visitor behaviour. 
So all of the visitors arrived concentration in the summer, as you would expect, but also within an individual day, we would have peaks at 11 o'clock and two o'clock, which will be familiar to lots of people who work in attractions. And again, we didn't try and do anything to smooth those visitors through the day. Our visitor experience suffered at our busiest times. And also because we're not a particularly big site, anyone that's been will know that, you know, there are quite a lot of enclosed spaces and visitors get very close to the Roman monument. And if you've packing in six or 7,000 people in a day, all with rucksacks on or turning around all the time, there's a sort of a conservation impact of those num- that number of people coming through the monument. And if they're knocking off bits of Roman stone, you can't really just stick it back on. It's not plastic fruit, is it, Simon? It's not It's not plastic fruit. No, it's <laughs> not. Um, and, and so we were, yes, we were making money, but our, our visitor experience scores were suffering. And also our, our conservation objectives were not being delivered by having that concentration of people through the year. So after that, we sort of engaged Baker Richards, or well, we went through a tender process uh, and ended up appointing Baker Richards to, um, to help us with a, with a pricing strategy. So what did that look like in terms of your team? Because I'd love to know who, who you got involved in that process, because I think sometimes things can happen back office that there's an agreement that this is what we're going to do, but we don't necessarily get all of the right members of the team involved from the start. So what did that look like for you? For us, it looked like a multidisciplinary team. So we had people from across the business involved in that. We set up a a project steering group and we had members of staff from VE on that group. Um, I thought it was particularly important to get um, VE staff involved early because ultimately they're the people that are going to sell the ticket to the customer. So if a customer walks up and the the member of staff, the visitor experience host that greets them doesn't feel the ticket's worth the selling price, then that will come across in the welcome. And, And equally, if they do feel it's worth the price, they understand the reason that we've implemented this strategy and the journey that we're going on, then they can sell it with confidence and they can articulate it. And if someone turns around and says it's expensive, they're ready to defend that price. So we had VE involved from the start. It was also really important to get senior leadership buy-in from across the, the business. So making sure that the curatorial staff understood that we were trying to manage down the numbers, at, or not, not down the numbers overall, but manage the numbers at peak times and smooth the, the visitors throughout the year for a specific conservation objective was really important because I think, um, you know, in, in visitor attractions, you know, usually there's a tension between the conservation objectives and the provision of access to that that um you know whether it's a, a museum whether it's a, a historic garden or house the more people you let through a space the more impact it has from a conservation objective so holding those two things in tension conservation and access are usually when in my experience we deliver best as a business meeting the needs both sort of, of our visitors but also the collections and buildings that we're caring for so making sure that everyone was signed up to the objectives at the start was really important. And then obviously we had you know, marketing um, uh, involved because again, they need to be able to be confident that we can sell these prices, that we're not going to get a load of feedback that, that we're too expensive and, and sort of the commercial professionals that you'd expect as well. So what did it look like then when you started to go through this process? How did you work out what that pricing was going to be? 
when we engaged Baker Richards, the first sort of phase of the project was a discovery phase. So we gave them access to lots of historic data. Um, so they took, took our, our ticketing data. They could look at how many people we had day by day, week by week. And they went back over five years. They also took the retail sales data. So, that, you know, because one of the things we didn't want to do was to make more money front of house as people walked in and then compromise our retail spend. So, so they looked at the range of data that we we had available and one of the features of the bars that they were able to identify is that we were quite predictable as as a site our visitor numbers were fairly um, predictable um, you know month by month and, and week by week and what that meant is they could be quite confident about the level of demand we were seeing, whether that was from domestic or international visitors. And that gave them more confidence in the recommendations they were making because we had a regular repeatable pattern of visitation. They were then able to say with, with confidence, you know, this model shouldn't impact on that. You know, if we were a less regular site was prone to more, I don't know, weather or seasonal fluctuations, then it might have been more difficult to, to have those that level of confidence. So, so we, we sort of the initial phase we went through was that that discovery phase. They took the data, they analysed it, and we also gave them a really clear brief. We didn't just want to make more money. Um, we felt really strongly that actually, as a heritage site, we didn't want to just become a luxury product that was only available to middle classes. So we gave them a brief that we wanted some of our prices to reduce um, and we wanted to not price up every school holiday you know what you might call the center parks pricing model where you can you can sort of identify when the school holidays are by the fact the price triples Mm -hmm. so you know we gave them a really clear brief and they went through that that data discovery phase initially uh, and came back to us halfway through the project and sort of presented back the data analysis that they'd done and said you know this is our picture of your business does it chime with your own understanding and for me that was one of the biggest um you know as well as getting a pricing strategy out of it having some consultants look at your business and effectively validate all the analysis that you you do your yourself was really helpful reassuringly for us they didn't tell us anything we didn't know but it is a validation of the quality of the performance management and the business analysts that I have working in my team that that you know they're producing MI that um you know that was consistent and telling a consistent yeah. story with that that Baker Richards did and so what decisions did you come to about the pricing and how does it work now and because I want to talk about how it worked then but also this was pre-pandemic right so then you had pandemic to deal with as well so so what what did you put in place so to start with we ended up with a relatively simple pricing structure we had three price points during the year so we had that sort of summer um, peak price period if you like we had the shoulder months so uh, spring and autumn and then we had the off-peak period through the winter and within that weekdays were always cheaper than weekends every time a visitor looked at our website there was always a choice to be made about what price they wanted to pay um, and for, when we were first speaking to baker richards they gave this great example of um I, it was it was one of the kids theater shows it may, may have been peppa pig world or something and and you know the parents were taking the kids to see peppa pig at the theater and there was a balloon on sale and it was four pounds for this balloon and they were getting loads of complaints about people not wanting to spend four pounds on a balloon next year they sold two balloons they sold one balloon for four pounds they sold one balloon for eight pounds not only did they get no complaints about the balloon uh, for four pounds they sold a load of eight pound balloons because all of a sudden people going to the theater were presented with a choice they could they could either buy no balloon but if they did want to buy a balloon they could choose to buy a four pound balloon or they could choose to buy an eight pound balloon and so it's then been their choice 
as to the price they've paid. Right. And so for us with visitors, they're looking at the website. There's always a choice that they can make. So when they choose to come on a Saturday, they know that they could have chosen to come on a Friday and it would have been cheaper, but the Saturday met their needs. So the price they've paid is a choice they've made based on the needs they've got. And so that was a re- introducing that element of choice was a really important feature of the of the pricing structure. Yes, yeah, so you're empowering them to make the decision about it, not forcing them into a decision. Absolutely. And I think the, the other thing we did in that first iteration of the pricing strategy was introduce an online discount because we knew lots of people looked at our website before they came, but very few people committed to the purchase on the website. Most people came and, and joined the queue. And that meant that we couldn't manage their arrival time because they just joined the queue and they'd get in when they got in. Right. Um, so we were seeing sort of five or seven percent pre-booking before the pandemic um, uh, and before we introduced this strategy. We introduced the strategy, we put in a 10% online discount and overnight we saw a, you know, a doubling in the number of people that were pre-booking. So for us, that, that was really helpful um, in terms of predicting their arrival time. But for our marketing team as well, all of a sudden we had the postcodes of where these people were coming from. It's valuable data that we, um, you know, we weren't getting beforehand. Um, you know, pre-booking um, has become slightly more important over the last couple of years. And we, we no longer have that discount for online because you know, it's been a necessity. So, uh, but that was, that was one of the features of that first iteration of the strategy. Amazing. And how, how did your visitors engage with it? What was the feedback when you launched it? We didn't get a lot of direct feedback about the fact that we had a new pricing strategy because the bars is, you know, one of our features is that we're a tick box destination. So we're 80% first time visitors. So in implementing a new strategy, we didn't have to concern ourselves too much with the person that said, oh, you were cheaper last year or you've done sure. something different to last year because those people, by and large, don't come year after year. Um, most people who've been before came on a school trip and said, oh, it came 20 years ago. It's changed a bit. And so, you know, it's it's definitely a, a different model. We operate to some other other attractions. Um, but what we, what we did see, we saw some complaints, but we saw complaints before the st- the strategy came in so we saw no more complaints on price than we did beforehand and we saw many fewer complaints about crowding and our value for money score increased and has continued to increase each year since we increased our prices that's brilliant and i think it comes back to that choice element so your visitors are standing there and they've made a choice to pay that money and so they didn't feel like they wanted to come to the bars and they had to pay the price they wanted to come to the bars and they were able to choose which price met the needs and, and the day that they wanted to come. And I think that's translated through to those scores. Absolutely. I'm definitely never going to pay £8 for a balloon, though. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. Me either, Kelly. No, it's not happening. <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't pay £4 either. No. <laughs> um, who needs a balloon? You're just going to let it go. I know, right. and then you're going to pop it and it's going to be a source of disappointment. <laughs> it's, you know... <laughs> Wow. In the wrong business. Right. This was pre-pandemic. So this was 2017. You started this process. 2017? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, 2017, I joined. We did the sort of the discovery and, and designed the strategy 2018, implemented it in 2019. Um, and we had we had our best ever year in terms of visitor numbers in 2019. But all of the growth came outside of the June, July and August period. So our growth came in April and May and September and October. So um, from that sort of objective of smoothing out the visitors through the year, we achieved that by pushing people out into those shoulder months. And also we didn't have one day over 7,000 visitors. In fact, we didn't have one day over 6,500 visitors. Now, 
that's still a lot of people through quite a small space mm. but we we certainly drove out those peaks that we were seeing you know before we implemented the strategy and as importantly we made 2.3 million pounds extra revenue in the first year of the strategy and baker richards modeling suggested that we'd make 2.4 million so they were really incredibly accurate in terms of the modeling that they'd done um, and the returns that were possible through this strategy and it you know it, it delivered so accurately to that really impressive bit of work i mean that is phenomenal impact isn't it the difference that that has made is is just so impressive but that was 2019 yeah what has happened since covid so I think because we had multiple price points through the year before COVID, it was much easier for us to reopen with a model that was reactive. I think if we'd only ever had a fixed price point, changing the price would have been a really big thing for us, whereas we changed our price twice a week. Um, and so being able to sort of reopen in um, the summer of 2020 with our planned summer pricing, we came to the end of August. And we were still seeing really strong demand against a, a much reduced capacity. And so we kept the prices at our peak price mm-hmm. through September and October. And, and you know, we, because we already had those price points built into our pricing structure, it was really easy for us to just take that decision to continue with the higher prices and maximize the revenue from the visitors that were coming through. And I'd say that, you know, arguably the the £300,000 of additional revenue we made from the pricing structure in 2020 was more useful than the 2.3 million that we made the year before, because, you know, there was, you know, revenue was so scarce at that point. And so, you know, being more reactive was really important. Obviously, we we ditched the online discount because online booking became a, a mandatory feature of going anywhere. So you, know, you didn't need to discount something that visitors had to do. And I think also it just having gone through a year where we charged more, we had the confidence that visitors were prepared to pay for that. And so coming out of COVID in late 2020, we did a phase two piece of work with Baker Richards, looking at what happened in 2019, but also what was happening in our sort of covid reopening and what that showed is that even though we'd increased the prices quite significantly through the summer in 2019 it had had a negligible impact on the demand so that gave us the confidence to be even punchier in that sort of that june july and august period with our peak pricing and we don't articulate it this way on our website but effectively we introduced a super peak price going into 2021 so having never charged more than £17 in 2018, this summer we've charged 27.50, not for a long period of the year. It's only at the weekends and it's only during June, July and August. So it, you know, it's only on sort of 15 days a year or something. Mm-hmm. But having that headline price, I think um, Dom from uh, Mary Rose talked about decoy pricing when yeah. he, he was on. It's almost that sort of if you've got that high headline price, then everything else feels comparatively good value as you as you trade down from that. So you know people are saying, well, you know, let's not go on Saturday. We'll go on on Wednesday because it's it's three pounds cheaper or whatever. Or you know, if you're buying a family ticket, even more. So I think you know using that sort of that headline price as a decoy and having real confidence about people's about the a the quality of your product. So yes, it's worth it. Um, because you know people are prepared to pay for it but also if you look at what else people are prepared to spend 27 pounds on um people spend 27 pounds on lots of different things so why why is the roman bars or why is the tower of london or stonehenge you know they're all equally 
valid calls on people's leisure spend um, and we should be confident about the quality of product that we we give to people you mentioned earlier about retail spend and this not having an effect on it what was the effect on retail spend once you transitioned to the variable pricing there was no impact at all so we didn't we didn't see an increase in retail spend pre-pandemic we just saw no impact at all for anyone who's been to the bars we've got a really small shop we're confined by being in the center of Bath. We'd love to be able to expand our shop. But when we do Alva benchmarking, we're consistently performing in the top two or three sites for sales per square meter. So we just know that we can't fit enough people in that shop for the number of people that come through the site. And the work that Baker Richards did showed that despite visitor numbers increasing year on year, the number of transactions that were taking place through the shop hadn't been keeping pace. Basically, our busiest times, the shop had reached saturation point. Right. So um, it may be that some people decided not to go into the shop because they'd paid more to come in. But for anyone that decided that, there was someone who has bypassed the shop before because you know they just looked and went, oh, that's too busy. So for anyone who was not going into the shop, there were other customers who were prepared to go in. And since COVID... Our retail spend has been through the roof um, and you know, our, our spend per visitor this year is 50 pence a visitor higher than it was pre-COVID. And I can't tell you why, Kelly. I, I was um, going to ask, what, why? <laughs> obviously, high quality ranges and you know my my retail colleagues would not forgive me if I, if I said it was anything other than the quality of product in there. But I, I think you know, certainly when we first reopened from COVID, people were just glad to be out. There was a sense, you know, particularly if you've, you know, if you've had a lockdown experience like mine with small children, you were just glad to be anywhere other than your own house. And our top selling lines before COVID were toiletries because we we're at the bars, spa and well-being. But people didn't want to buy toiletries because, you know, in 2020, no one was picking up anything and sniffing it. That felt like quite a risky <laughs> thing to do. Um, but we sold gin and that was a genius move. So we, we sold gin and children's books. And I think, you know, most people's lockdown experiences were similar to mine, not enough gin and not enough children's books. So they came to the Roman bars and they bought both of those things in spades. But, you know, as, as toiletries have come back through that, they're, they're picking up in terms of sales, but people spending a lot of money, you know, buying high priced jewelry products. I, I wish I could tell you why you should have asked Callum when he was on. Yeah. I, yeah, I should. Well, I'll post the question to him and see if he knows. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder if it's that, I mean, I, I was very conscious of visiting attractions and spending money in the retail stores because of the fact that they've been shut. You know, I wanted to spend more money. I wanted to do my bit because I wanted those places to stay open. So I wonder if there's still a residue of that happening when people are visiting. I think in 2020, we we definitely put it down to that. And you could almost see it as well. And there was a sense that people had saved money, whether that was on commuting costs or childcare bills or whatever. There was a sense that people had saved money during the lockdowns and therefore they had more disposable income. But, you know, we're coming you know, with the cost of living pressures. We're coming into a winter with massive uncertainty. Mm. And every month I look at those retail numbers and I'm waiting for that spend per visitor to drop. And it hasn't done yet. So I think it's more than just a sort of a, a, an altruistic desire to support the attractions. And maybe it's about people choosing to prioritise this activity of their spend over, you know, I don't know, Netflix subscriptions or something. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can't, can't answer that question, but we're, right. we're glad to see it. I'll ask Callum. I'll ask Callum Lumsden of Lumsden Design and see if he can tell us and, and shed some light on it. All right. So... What I'd really like to know, if you um, could give your top tips for people that are thinking about going through this process, 
what would they be for anyone that's listening now that's thinking this is a genius thing to do i would like to add 2.3 million to my revenue please i think the first thing is being really clear on your objectives so for us it wasn't just about making more money we'd have ended up with a pricing strategy that looked different if we wanted to just make more money so the ability to deliver something for uh, visitor experience objectives and conservation objectives was really important and really featured heavily in the brief that we gave to Baker Richards. So starting out with that clarity of purpose, I think would be my my first tip. Um, I'd also say if I know budgets are tight at the moment, but if you can pay for the analysis, then firstly, it's such a helpful validation of your own um, your own business analysis that you're doing yourselves. But when you need to sell this inwardly, so we're part of the council, we needed to sell this strategy inward, inwardly to local politicians and the council leadership. But if you're, if you're in a more sort of uh, typical attraction, you're going to need to sell this to your trustees. And having that sort of analysis as a validation of your strategy and your approach will hopefully give them the confidence that that you know, increasing prices by a significant percentage is not a ridiculous thing to do, certainly involving your front of house teams. And that's not linked to pricing strategy. That's just linked to anything you do in your attraction. Your front of house team are the people that are going to hear from the visitors what they think about it. They're the person that's got to explain your own strategic direction to the visitors when they're in front of them. But, but particularly when it comes to pricing, I think making sure that they're involved, they've got a chance to ask questions and also that you're giving them that feedback as well. So that sort of regular communication, once you've implemented it, tell them whether what you're seeing is what you expected to see. Because otherwise, if you if there's a void in that communication, they'll fill it with their own analysis or, or it didn't seem very busy last Saturday. Um, and it might not have been busy last Saturday because it was pouring with rain as opposed to your pricing strategy is not working. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you're having that regular dialogue with those teams on an ongoing basis. And I think the final thing is sort of holding your nerve and that you know, when we'd never charged more than uh, seventeen pounds before that first Saturday, when our prices were twenty-two pounds, there's a level of nervousness that is associated with that. And so, you know, holding the nerve when when price setting, um, we could do a whole separate podcast on communicating with the travel trade. Um, but it's safe to say that 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 was probably the most challenging aspect of the project in terms of moving the travel trade onto a variable pricing model when they have a you know they sell in advance they sell through third parties and that was a really difficult set of conversations but we held our nerve um, and despite being told that you know they wouldn't be able to work with us they wouldn't be able to bring us the volume 2019 they bought us more people than they'd ever bought us before so so there is a bit about holding nerve and I think post-implementation don't be tempted to tinker too much because otherwise you won't know if the strategy didn't work or whether you fiddled with it and then it didn't work. So I think, you know, if you, if you change too many things at once, this is, this is the nerd in me, you change too many things at once, you can't tell what's made the difference. So trying to only change one thing will tell you whether that one thing works or not. Obviously, go through a pandemic you change everything all at once and it's very difficult there but but generally speaking if you can if you can sort of make change in a stage where you can measure the impact of any intervention whereas if you change four or five things at once you don't know what's caused it uh caused the effect that you're seeing so those would be my top tips i think kelly brilliant absolutely excellent advice simon i know that you are um you're an alpha member i know that you're really keen um to speak with other attractions i know that you're a very um 
well, obviously you've come on the podcast to share your insight and I know you're very keen to do that. So I'm sure if anyone does have questions around the OTA challenge or variable pricing, I'm sure that you'd be super happy to talk to people. Yeah, always happy to. We will pop all of Simon's um, details in terms of like, we'll put his LinkedIn profile and a link to the Roman Baths in the show notes. So if you do want to reach out to him and ask me any questions, please feel free. Simon, a book that you would recommend to our listeners, something that you love or something that shaped your career. What do you have for us today? This was a difficult question. I tried really hard to think of a workbook that had changed my career. And I really could, I've, I've read I've read workbooks, but there's not one that I go back to time and time again. So, so I, I've picked a, a fiction book. So I've picked A Thousand Splendid Sons, which is a novel by uh, Khaled Hassini, um, which is set in Afghanistan. And I don't think many people are going to choose this book after I describe it it's not an uplifting read it's a really challenging um, it's a really challenging read the central characters are women living in Afghanistan forced into marriage during a time when the Taliban's influence was growing but I think I read it at a time when Afghanistan was in the news a lot and we were probably presented with a relatively one-dimensional interpretation of Afghanistan in the way that the news coverage came through and so it offered me an insight into sort of I guess life beyond the headlines um, and despite the fact that it was a really harrowing read at times there was a sense of hope that came through even the most difficult situations and I think that that really stayed with me and as somebody who's probably well, very interested in sort of world affairs and politics I think it, it really challenged me to make sure that you sort of read around the topic if, if you know before coming up with a, a really definite position or uh, opinion on a world situation the need to sort of read around something and I know this wasn't a you know, it wasn't a fact book it was a fiction book but but I think it it really changed my perspective on um on Afghanistan say so I don't think many people want to read it but if you want a, a really harrowing read um but you know a sense of of hope in really difficult times it is a it is a great book thank you well thank you for sharing um i'm sure people will want that and if you do if you go over to our twitter account skip the queue and you retweet this uh, podcast announcement with the words i want simon's book you could be in with the chance of winning it simon thank you it's been lovely to chat to you um i always enjoy chatting to you even though i called you a nerd earlier i apologize about that i'll forgive you kelly <laughs> Um, if you do have a little pub quiz that you'd like me and Simon to join that you think that we'd be useful for, please do let us know. <laughs> but on that note, I think we'll end the podcast there. Thanks, Simon. It's been fab. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.